Welcome to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Helena. This podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. Tom, who are we talking to this week? So this week, we are talking to my good friend and also president of the Edinburgh University Ornithological Society also known as Birdsock, Sorrel Lyle. She's super lovely. We met over the summer on a research project doing fieldwork together. And yeah, she's just a really cool person. This is the thing that you were on this summer with the the sausage grip. That's like the main thing that I remember from that (laughs) conversation. (laughs) Yeah, the sausage grip, sneaking around in the bushes, scaring dog walkers. It's that project. (laughs) Yeah, she's an insanely talented birder. She does a lot of work trying to get young people engaged in nature and bird watching, which is super cool. And she's also really pushing diversity in birding as well. So yeah, she's just an insanely talented person with a lot of very cool things to say. How's it going? Good. Oh, I just, it hits four o'clock and I just want to sit on the sofa under the duvet and just, yeah, can't do anything. It's really frustrating, but it's not too bad. Honestly, that's, that's just me after lunch. Like, <laughs> I eat some lunch and I'm like, ah, oh, food coma is inbound. I, know, I get really sleepy. There's no way I can make it through the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> How are you finding the online learning situation? Um, it's okay. Now I kind of have a, I know what I'm required to do each week, it's fine. But when, like the first couple of weeks, you didn't really know what you were doing. It was a bit all over the place. So I thought we could start the podcast talking about how we met on the Blue Tip Project, because I've got some hilarious, like, stories from that. How did you get involved with that project? So I was supposed to be doing my exams, actually, uh, which is why I couldn't do the Blue Tip Project to start with, because it sort of coincided with the end of the uni term. And then... I can't remember what my plans were for this summer. It seemed so long ago. There was something in the pipeline, <laughs> that, um, some volunteering thing that couldn't happen. But yeah, so I ended up doing the work with Jared on the blue tips, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of nice to like have something to do. Yeah, and be outside every day. Yes. Oh, my God. Uh, it was a dream. It was an absolute dream. So just for, for the listeners who may not know, we're working on a project looking at blue tits and part of the research we had to catch the adults so that we could take DNA samples and you know all that sort of jazz (laughs) but that involved like wearing these insane like camouflage ghillie suits like crawling around in the undergrowth (laughs) which was kind of weird but also hilarious. (laughs) Yeah it was good though I remember the day when uh, I was walking along the path and I heard your voice and I was like wait I can't see Tom anywhere. Where is he? And then he stood on you. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, I definitely terrified a lot of people because there was like dog walkers who would be coming through. And I think at this 
by this point they knew we would be there somewhere like hiding in the bushes (laughs) (laughs) they were just on edge the whole time i don't know if you had any like funny experiences when you were hiding in the undergrowth I, f- I fell over quite a lot of times. There's one time I was, I was hiding and then ran to the box and completely just tanked it over this log and uh, did like a, a little a little roll in the in the brambles and got back <laughs> up again uh, and cut my arm. But um, yeah, definitely scared quite a few dog walkers. <laughs> I didn't do a lot of the adult catching. You guys did most of that. Mm. I'm kind of grateful that was very high pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was intense and um i remember there was one point i was hiding out and then i heard these two dog walkers like screaming around the corner i think they had discovered jared <laughs> like, <laughs> hiding in the bushes and they were terrified it was so funny but it was intense because we we had like a number to hit yeah there was pressure yeah it was it was real how did you get into birding in the first place i know your your grandparents introduced you right yeah, so my grandparents are birders, and that's kind of what well, that is how I got into it. And then I didn't really know about like conservation careers. It's not really something you're taught about in school. It's not a traditional career path that's particularly advertised or whatever. But I did find out about ecology as a career. I think when I was about sixteen, and then kind of realised, oh yeah, that's for me. That that's uh, try and make my hobby into a career. So you see how that goes. Yeah, and I started taking it all more seriously, took the bird watching more seriously and like tried to develop my skills more and tried to start getting experience in different things. And yeah, kind of went from there, really. And what are your kind of early memories of like doing it with your grandparents? I remember first learning the difference between male and female blackbirds. That for some reason that sticks in my brain. I don't know why it was like my first little identification thing. Yeah, there's some there's some nice cringy photos of me looking through a scope in some awful like 2007 fashion um <laughs> uh, yeah but and, and just visiting nature reserves with my grandparents lots of fond memories there for sure and then like doing the big big garden bird watch with my mom and stuff like that what are your kind of best experiences of birding is there any like really funky bird that you've seen that just sticks in your mind or anything like which is super cool oh there's lots of things I know I feel really lucky to live in Scotland and have access to some awesome places. I went around the Highlands this summer when we were allowed to and just bumping into wildlife all around like we were up on the northwest coast and there'd just be flocks of twite everywhere uh, which is really cool because twite are a species, they're a small finch that are restricted to upland areas where they breed and like pretty remote areas of Scotland so they're not a species I encounter very often so just bumping into them when we were sort of camping and things was great and then all of a sudden a merlin would like like absolutely just whoosh through the flock and just go for it and it was great it's just amazing to see stuff like that yeah so yeah i mean i see some rare things in the uk and and some cool birds abroad but it's it's like certain encounters that like stick with you had some amazing experiences watching golden eagles earlier this year we actually watched them mating which i think is pretty rare thing to see yeah it's kind of mad and just like yeah, just getting really cool views of things, of, of like display flights and stuff like that. It's just cool behaviour that, that you don't see very often at all. They're the kind of things that stick with me. I'm so jealous of your trip. That sounds so cool. I know. Two weeks of full sun, camped every night, didn't get rained on. <laughs> That's never, ever going to happen again. How were the midges? Uh, yeah, the midges were bad. <laughs> we went in August, so it was, um, it was yeah, not great. But uh, worth it for the good weather, I think. 
My friend has one of those hats that has like one of the nets that comes down like over your head. Yeah, we had midgy hoods. It's quite, it's quite a look. Although mine, I didn't realise mine's a, a mosquito hood, not a midge hood. So the holes are actually too big and eventually the midges get in, uh, which is worse because then they're trapped in with you. <laughs> yeah, freaked out a couple of times, but it's not too bad. I think they're good for keeping the midges at bay, but if you want to like eat food or like take a drink. Yeah, then it, then it gets challenging. What is it in particular that kind of attracted you to birding in the first place? What's the thing that you love the most about doing it? What, what do you get from that experience? That's a tough one. I think there's so much to it. I, and I think it started off as like a fascination. Like that there's these really cool creatures going about their own lives. It's so interesting to watch them just doing what they do and learn about them and learn about all different behavior strategies, different migration patterns, different how birds feed and how birds use habitats. And it's, it's just fascinating. I remember watching, I think it was a Chris Packham documentary when I was quite young about the interconnectedness of nature and that's when it like really clicked I was like whoa okay yeah everything is interconnected everything's linked if we lose one thing it affects everything else and then that kind of spurred me on this ecology journey yeah and then now it's definitely more of like the the mental health benefits and the general well-being benefits for me like it's so important for me to be outside and in nature and watching birds and observing and like you can just immerse yourself in it and it takes your concentration away from anything else because you're just focused on what's there in the present and it's great and I need to remember to do that more <laughs> with lockdown things and I need to I need to get outside and carry on birding because it's easy to forget how helpful it is yeah when you when you're locked inside trying to do uni work all day but quite a lot of young birders start off as just birders and then we kind of branch out into other things so there was a phase a few years ago when everyone started getting into moth trapping and then in summer we all start doing dragonflies and stuff so yeah it's definitely like a like a gateway into the world of nature for a lot of people (laughs) (laughs) birding is the gateway drug to nature you heard it here first guys it's true yeah no definitely i think it's i think for a lot of or a lot of the young birders i know birding is our like main passion but um yeah i mean obviously nature is all interconnected as i said and everything fits has its place in the ecosystem so learning about it all together and how it all works together and then doing that at university is super interesting and I I guess that kind of stresses the importance of getting people engaged and going into nature I think it's super important to to get people just engaged you know as early as possible yeah definitely I think um well engagement for young people is huge I don't think it's pushed enough in schools and hopefully things are starting to change with that I think also I think conservation charities are seeing more the kind of social science side of conservation and using yeah the sort of psychology side of things to bring more people into nature and and this kind of mental health and well-being these these benefits showing that it is it is like multidisciplinary and that's how we can get more people involved and um engage more people how many years ago was it when that you started the bird sock Birdstock, we actually had our first official event a year ago, literally a year ago yesterday or something like that. So, yeah, so I'm in my third year of uni now, but I came to uni knowing one of the birder here. That's Gav. He was our president of Birdstock last year. And then we met Phoebe the next year, who is also a birder here at uni. And then we're like, right, there's three of us. Let's set up a society, see if there's any other young birders here at uni. Thankfully, there were. We've had some pretty good turnout at, at our events considering it's a very niche hobby, especially for young people. 
yeah, it's been great. So it's it's weird thinking it's only been a year since you ran our first official event. Yeah. I feel like a lot has happened in that in that last year. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been really good fun actually. Stressful at times. <laughs> Trying to get a society off the ground was harder than I was expecting. Yeah. But yeah, we've like our trips and our sort of local days out and birding days have been well attended and we've got a really nice community now of a really supportive, friendly community of of or at least I like to think so. I hope so. As <laughs> young birders here at uni, everyone's giving advice to each other and like responding to identification queries and like, oh, what book should I read next and stuff like that. And it's just it's a very wholesome, wholesome environment. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. And have you found that there's quite a lot of interest? Was there like more or less than you thought there would be? It's more than I thought there would be. Yeah. We've had we had almost forty people at one uh, workshop event, which kind of blew me away at the time. Um. So yeah, I've been. Yeah, really surprised because I mean, growing up well, at school, I was the only one interested in birds. Didn't know anyone, anyone else my age. I knew of maybe three other people in my county that were interested in birds that were under the age of twenty-five. And then coming to Edinburgh, I knew one other person that was Gav. So then, then to have like forty people at our event was pretty crazy. And yeah, and then I've just met more and more people, and well, like yourself, <laughs> made more friends in birding here. Yeah, so it's been great. Yeah. Do you do you think? That it's becoming more of a mainstream kind of hobby, especially kind of amongst the younger generation. It's hard to say because I'm aware that I'm definitely in a bubble <laughs> with my social media and my sort of friendship circles and stuff. Definitely in a bubble of ecology people. Um, but I think it's becoming more normalised. I think I can't speak for what it's like in schools now if things have changed. Well, there's things like talk of a natural history GCSE and people are trying to get that off the ground. So when if things like that happen, then it's just going to make nature just more normal for young people, which I think is really important and not seen as this uncool, uncool hobby that only old people do. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think it is becoming more and more mainstream, especially as more people are getting involved with the mental health side of it and seeing the benefits of nature in that way and actually i saw on the news this week the rspb has partnered up with edinburgh like local healthcare to start prescribing birdsong and nature to patients which is Whoa. really exciting yeah it's a trial at the moment or it will be a trial but yeah things like that just show like it is becoming more mainstream which is really exciting yeah that's really cool I actually, I remember my first bird sock event. I think it was probably like the first or second thing that you guys had, had ran. Um, it was a trip out to Musselburgh and my mum was up for the weekend. So we, we went along with my flatmate and yeah, there, it was such a huge group of people there. And I was like, this is wild. This is like so cool. And everyone was like, look, there's like a velvet scoter. And at the time I had, I had no idea what that was. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. That is a velvet scoter. <laughs> and then when I met you over the summer, I had no idea that you you were like big dog in Birdsock. I didn't realize you were like founding member. And I was like, hey, Sorrel, have you heard of this like Birdsock thing? <laughs> it's kind of crazy. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, how you started it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how has it been kind of adjusting to all the restrictions, coronavirus restrictions? Yeah, that's been really hard. Uh, I know a lot of societies have found it really hard especially well for birding it's obviously our events are centered around being in a group together learning from each other being outside and it's been quite frustrating that we can't run events I completely understand it and um, mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's I get why we can't run events, but it is frustrating. So we're trying our best to do online engagement for our blog at the moment. And we have an active sort of Facebook group for members, so people are having discussions quite regularly, which is really nice. But it is hard to engage new members. And I really feel for people looking for societies at the moment that don't know exactly, yeah, that want to meet new people and things like that. It must be really tricky because it's really tricky for us as a society to put things on and run events and Zoom events have their difficulties we had a pub quiz at the start of the year and the technology was not not working for us and it was really annoying because you put a lot of effort into these events and then the technology lets you down and so yeah there's been a lot of a lot of adjusting but yeah I think it's okay we I'd love to have more events but it is just really hard to kind of just keep things up and and running but hopefully hopefully we'll be able to run in-person things again soon and um and I mean we're trying to encourage our members to get out and as much as possible and hopefully we'll do some online sort of training things and workshops that's the plan but you've you've had some successful events like uh just yesterday at the time of recording if you could tell us a bit about that yeah so we had a mindful birding and stress awareness workshop called beating the blues with bird watching um i can't claim that title i didn't come up with it but i quite liked it (laughs) it was a really interesting evening actually so we had someone from health in mind which is the scotland-based mental health charity deliver a stress awareness workshop for us and then we sort of centered it around well the mindfulness of birding because it's something we've talked about quite a lot in birdstock committee about how about how mindful birding can be when you're not stressed and looking for a rarity (laughs) birding is is really quite de-stressing and relaxing and mindful and yeah like immersing yourself in nature really just takes away from everything else so we really just wanted to explore that for people and um it was yeah it was it was a really interesting event lots of discussion and definitely it's the first time we've run something like that and first time I've ever done a stress workshop sort of over Zoom as well. So it's interesting to see what works well and, and what kind of is harder to do as a, over an online platform. We had a wellness wall throughout the events and thought about how birding fits into the five ways to wellness, which are things like give, connect, be active, take notice. And I can't remember the fifth one off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and how birding fits into them. Oh, keep learning. That was another one, which is obviously a big part of birding because there's always more to learn. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was a very interesting evening. I'd like to run more things like that. Yeah, that sounds really cool. We, we touched on kind of getting more people into things like birding at a younger age um, a little bit earlier. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the work you do with the BTO Youth Advisory Panel. Yeah, so this year I've been involved with the BTO, which is the British Trust for Ontology, and their new youth advisory panel, which is a group of 10 of us from the age of 16 to 25, I believe, from all around the UK. And we have regular meetings and we've been sort of discussing how to implement youth engagement in the BTO strategy going forward, which is really exciting to well, a national organization with a big following, a big membership is really pushing for this youth engagement, which is wonderful. So yeah, we've had lots of discussions about things, lots of bouncing ideas back and forth about how to engage young people. We sent out a survey and got people, young people's responses, sort of what barriers young people face to getting into birding and things like transport is a big one. If like uh, nature places are often quite hard to get to without your own transport having time like fitting nature into your busy like education life uh, is really quite challenging and then money binoculars and things like that equipment is expensive and that definitely presents a big barrier to young people so it's been interesting exploring those and then how we can address those so we've actually just 
started implementing our ideas, which is really exciting. We, we decided to run a youth representative scheme where we recruit youth reps, currently going to go through a trial period, but like a pilot. But we have youth reps to do on the ground engagement, working in their region with local schools and universities and local bird clubs to sort of facilitate connections and get more young people engaged with birding and nature, but also engaged with the science side of things. BTO is uh, a bird science charity and all about the recording of birds and gathering data and citizen science data and using that to inform conservation policy, which is hugely important. So, yeah, it's been really interesting working with the youth advisory panel and trying to yeah just engage more young people and getting organizations to include young people in their visions for the for the future and their strategy going forward yeah we've had meetings with the the bto board which are a bit scary but um <laughs> and like bto ceos yeah so it's it's good it's really exciting and i know the rcb has got something similar they've got their youth council so it's great that organizations are, are taking more steps on this yeah i think that's really cool I know, especially just over the summer, there was a lot of, um, with the Black Lives Matter protests and things, there was all these issues that were thrown up about making people feel welcome in nature and how organisations like BTO or the RSPB can, you know, really take proactive steps to kind of tackle those issues. Do you, do you feel like this could potentially be a way to do that by getting more young people involved kind of at an earlier age and growing the diversity of people that take part? Yeah, so as part of the youth engagement work we're doing, diversity is really at the heart of that. And we, we want to start off, you know, on the best foot, like start off as, as inclusive as we can. Because, yeah, off the back of the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer, I was seeing some, well, it just it just came across to me, like, well, it became apparent to me that the birding community is, can be quite narrow-minded and excludes people. And so I'm, I'm, half Indian, half white British. And growing up as like a young birder, I'd walk into a conference room and there's no one, there's, it's it's all old white males generally at these events. And it is daunting. And so it's become like ever clearer that there is a diversity issue in birding. But yeah, so these organizations are starting to have these conversations more and more. I think this summer's really seen a turning point and it's been really interesting. Lots of organisations now have like diversity working groups and are starting to talk about these issues with their staff and their members and listening to the voices of minority groups, which is hugely important. I sent out a, a sort of an anonymous survey earlier in the summer on Twitter asking for the opinions of, of minority group birders. And it was just sort of a personal exploration and to sort of inform some of the decisions we were making in Birdstock. We just had to make Birdstock as inclusive as possible. And it kind of snowballed and, and completely escalated and then ended up sending the feedback to lots of different conservation organisations across the UK because there were some really quite eye-opening responses to the survey about people how people feel excluded in birding. It also received a lot of negative feedback. I forget that Twitter can be a nasty place sometimes and there was a lot of gaslighting and people responding saying, oh, this is virtue signalling and stuff like that, which sets you back a bit, but it makes you realise that, you know, you need to have, we need to have these conversations more and more about the lack of diversity in birding. And people saying, oh, this is just an issue of the whole of the UK. It's not specific to birding. It's like, no, but if we're here in birding organisations, in nature organisations and in this nature community, surely we should be doing something in our own communities, in our own like spheres of influence to try and 
tackle these issues like no i can't tackle racism across the uk um <laughs> but i can try and start some conversations up in the in the sort of twitter conservation world so i think yeah there was a, it's been a lot of things to think about in terms of um these issues over summer but it's really encouraging that more organizations are taking action and talking about things and there's just more publicity about it now but i think we've got to remember that change isn't going to be instant we're not instantly going to see a hugely diverse conservation sector and that was actually something that came up when we were recruiting uh, youth representatives for the bto we didn't have a very diverse group of applicants at all and we were sort of talking about that in our meeting and yeah i think it's just important to remember that it's not going to be an instant solution but it's about changing attitudes and over time people feeling more comfortable to get involved with the conservation community because they over time they won't there will be less barriers to people and we want to take down those barriers so i think that's what's key yeah yeah so yes a lot of interesting quite heavy discussions going on recently and i found it pretty draining especially with uni going on as well yeah i I, it's hard to know what to prioritize sometimes but (laughs) yeah I think that's tough because often, for whatever reasons, the burden seems to fall on the people who are affected by it. So the people who are out there not necessarily feeling fully welcomed in these environments. And it's kind of not, it's not how it should be, you know, but I guess it's just like an unfortunate, just the way that these things play out. But I guess the good thing about these bigger organizations taking note and really taking some kind of proactive steps in the right direction, I think. Now the onus is on them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think the problem at the moment is that there's so few sort of people of colour in conservation in organisations that the the or everyone goes to them for their advice or whatever. But we don't know the ins and outs of these issues exactly. We're just talking about personal experiences or I was sort of relaying people's experiences that they shared with me through the survey. So I I'm not an expert in this by any means. And it does feel like there is this burden of, oh, you need to come up with all the answers. But actually, no, it's it's on the senior leadership of these organizations to find the answers and take action. And yeah, there's I've been talking to a few women of color in the industry, and it's really nice to have that support from other people that, that get it. You don't need to explain yourself to. And yeah, we're feeling a lot of the same kind of pressures that uh, people keep coming to you for advice, which is really nice. But at the same time, it's like, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. When we when it's also a voluntary role that we're doing on top of work or education. You also are a very talented artiste. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Did you begin kind of drawing and painting from an early age? Because I've seen I've seen some of your work. I think shortly after we met, I followed you on Twitter, and then we became friends on Facebook. And I saw you post some of your stuff, and I was like, "This is wild." <laughs> How is how is anyone this talented? So unfair. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've I've liked art for since forever. I um, did it at school and things like that. But then I started painting birds when I was maybe sixteen, and then kind of just kept practicing, kept doing it. Realized I really like this. I can paint the things that I love to watch. You know, I can. It's, it's like all my hobbies are just one big hobby. My Hopefully my career is my hobby. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah. so I just started painting more and more and I started selling them. And um, it's hard to fit it in with uni. I'm a bit behind on some commissions. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's a good way to relax. 
You can find Sorrel's work on her website, sorrellylewildlife.weebly.com, where she publishes prints, photographs, and her blog. She's super talented, so make sure to check it out. We'll pop the link in the show notes as usual. And a massive thank you to Sorrel for coming on the show. If you're keen on bird watching, keep your eyes peeled for upcoming birdsock events. You can find the birdsock or the Edinburgh University Ornithological Society on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. You can also follow Sorrel on Twitter at Sorrel Lyle. And if you're interested in the issue of diversity in birding, I highly recommend a recent piece that Sorrel wrote for Rare Bird Alert and the talk that she recently gave for the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. We'll add those links in the show notes as well. This podcast is brought to you by Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you'd like to get in touch with a question, a suggestion, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, and we are looking for people for season two, so please do get in touch, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at EUSCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was edited by my partner in crime, Helena Cornu. The podcast logo was designed by USI chief editor, Apple Chu, and awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funk of Rama and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. I've been your host, Tom Edwick, and until next time, keep it science. Wonderful! Smashed it!